Hi everyone, good afternoon. This is Tarun Takrani again, uh, continuing my series of the MBA Perspectives podcast, which, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've had been at it, but I guess I've been looking for the right uh, guest to have on my show and the right person to sort of talk about their MBA experiences and, uh, you know, the, the paths they took after after the MBA. So, joined by other classmates from uh, Manchester, uh, Michael Vachon. Michael uh, hails from the US, but uh, you know he'll tell you a bit more. He's in my eyes, uh, uh, Mr. James Bond, with uh, you know multiple passports and a global citizen of the world in many ways. Uh, settled here in London and uh, very very successful in terms of pursuing an entrepreneurship uh, career. He was one of the uh, you know. I'd call him one of the single-minded people who came into the MBA with the, the vision of being entrepreneurial and setting his own thing up and following that path. Uh, even though our MBA wasn't necessarily geared towards it, Michael uh, carved his way around it and, you know, as I said, been very, very successful at it. He's uh, set up one business, uh, which was in the uh, drinks segment and then uh, most recently along with his wife he's uh, established an olive oil business so um, it's uh, not not many people are you know successful at one business and Michael's done it twice already maybe more even than, than I know so uh, uh, just I thought it would be interesting to chat with him about his experiences and uh, you know learn a bit from from him so uh, hi Michael Hi, Turin. Uh, thank you very much for having me here. Uh, you have given me one of the more flattering introductions that I've had in a very long time. Uh, I'd like to think at least half of it is true. Um, more more but, than half. Uh, I'd I, I say I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here and share a few uh, bits about my story. Great. So, so Michael, why don't you, you start with a bit of uh, you know, your story and... Uh, uh, sort of your background and, and a little before how you got to the MBA and then you know I think it's from there that uh, the the if not before the entrepreneurial genes kick in and you, you sort of uh, you know head off on that path so we can we can touch on that uh, uh, after that yeah of course so as you say I'm originally from just outside Washington DC uh, I went to the University of Maryland and I studied sociology and criminology in my undergrad degree. Uh, I was going to be a police officer in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, and then I found out that recent graduates could get a six-month visa to the UK. And uh, I thought I may never get an another chance like that again. So I got on a plane and came to London without a job or really a, a plan. Uh, but knowing that it would only be six months. Uh, well, that was a little over 15 years ago. <laughs> uh, and I'm still here. And uh, I worked in IT project management here for uh, a little over four years before deciding that I wanted to go and do the MBA um, with the intention of actually changing career. I actually... Uh, might come as a surprise to you, but I, I actually didn't have the intention to go off and do my own uh, projects. But um, I really wanted to work around startups. I love the energy, the excitement that um, that I know exists in, in so many of the startups that I have been fortunate to work with. Um, I was really looking forward to 
either working in business development for for a startup or working for a VC uh, and enabling the growth of the next big unicorn startup. Um, turns out I ended up doing none of those things and uh, I ended up starting a spirits business out of my flat. Uh, I thankfully had a very patient flatmate, one of our other MBA colleagues who you know well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I imported 600 and, uh, no, sorry, 720 bottles of spirits, mostly gin and whiskey, into my flat in September of 2012 and started going around and knocking on doors and making deliveries and uh, had a suitcase that held 12 bottles and a suitcase that could hold 24. And uh, I can tell you, lugging around a suitcase full of 24 bottles, each of which weighs a kilo empty. So full was probably over 50 kilos plus the suitcase and dragging that through the tube to make deliveries is great experience, but perhaps not something I am wishing to do again. <laughs> so so what? Uh, why the drinks business? Why uh, alcoholic beverages? Well, I was always a bit of a, a cocktail geek. Uh, I, ca- I can't make a cocktail to save my life, but I really loved the atmosphere and the hospitality of some of the world's best bars. And I got to know some bartenders quite well. And what I realized was that the the craft beer movement that is really, um, you know, you, you can't go to a bar now without there being a range of craft beers. But even in 2012, it was reasonably mainstream. Um, cra- craft had become mainstream when it comes to beers. Right. And in spirits, the, that, that same movement hadn't really happened here, but it had happened in the US. Uh, in 2005, in the US, there were about 50 what we would consider craft distilleries. Uh, so, manufacturers of, of spirits. And by 2012, there were nearly a thousand. Wow, so, that's, that's a big increase. You know, and I saw the, the way that the market and all the data sh- showed that the growth trajectory of number of distilleries versus number of breweries in the craft segment actually traces the growth just about 15 years later. So I said, well, craft beer is now pretty firmly established here in the UK. Craft spirits in 2012, there was a handful. I mean, uh, three or four brands that were really starting to make a name for themselves here. And I thought, I think this trend is going to uh, happen in the exact same way it has in the US. And I think that we need to not just play a part in that trend, but hopefully take a leadership position in it. So that's amazing. So you you were actually following a market trend or you had observed this obviously in the US and you, you sort of wanted to, uh, you know, take advantage or, or be the first mover, so to say, in this space. And, and uh, was there no one else doing this or, or do you think, uh, you know, you just had a leg up coming from the US and having seen it there already? Yeah, I was fortunate that I, um, you know, I made I made some very good friends who were very fortunate with their time. Uh, journalists, writers who to this day are, are, are friends of mine, who 
we're happy to take an hour-long call. Um, and we did some of the pre-research for this in my last term in the NBA. Um, I actually, and I, and I don't know if anyone had done it before me. I don't, I don't think they had. But I actually wrote a letter to our NBA director asking for funding to do an entrepreneurship project for credit to assess the feasibility of launching a craft gin in the UK. And uh, unbelievably, uh, she she bought into it and she gave us £3,000 uh, of research money, of which I used some of that to fly out and visit distilleries in the US, um, some of which I later actually imported into the UK. So you can actually say that the MBA entrepreneurship program had a direct financial contribution to the economy here insofar as we we later then imported and sold those brands here in the UK. That's incredible. That's that's amazing. I did actually know that, uh, but I may be one of the few people that actually knew that. And I did know you did a completely separate entrepreneurship, uh, you know, research project, as you said, on, on this. Uh, but but again, I mean, Manchester itself uh, doesn't lend itself to entrepreneurship. It's not its, uh, you know, so to say, forte. It talks more about consulting and things like that. So so what what the first way I would put it is what brought you to Manchester? And then secondly, you know, what why did you think that uh, uh, or what gave you the confidence that you could carve out your own sort of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, niche in, in that area? Because, again, I don't know anyone else who, who sort of did that, even in our class or before or after us. Um, so MBA programs and I mean this uh, generally speaking, not just Manchester, but, but most that I've come across uh, can and aren't always, I, again, I, I, I am painting a broad brush here, but can be a bit formulaic. They give you the tools and it's more about how you apply those tools. Uh, and I've seen some people go on and apply those tools as if they are the gospel. And I've seen some people who go on to apply those tools as a as a almost more of a uh, a guideline yep. rather than uh, than the rule. And the thing that I was most driven to Manchester about was the opportunity to take the tools, but also understand how they apply in practice throughout the course. Um, whether it be on our not-for-profit course, our UK consultancy, or our international consultancy project. Yep. Um, I, I didn't really, uh, and, and as well, the internships for those who did them. I, I didn't really come across any of the programs that were that practical um, in terms of the things that you would learn on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, in, in principle, the... The, the skills and the learnings across many MBA programs, certainly the top tier MBA programs of which I would consider Manchester for sure. Uh, the, the, the theory isn't fundamentally different from one to the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so, so for me, I was looking for the uh, best way to put that theory into practice. And I say, you know, there, there are, uh, any number of jokes about MBAs, if you want to look them up. But the <laughs> but the, the, the stereotype is that uh, 
MBAs approach problems in the same way, MBAs think in the same way, and MBAs um, really take these tools and uh, apply them as if they are um, a one-size-fits-all. Yep. And I think the, the, the people who get the most out of it are the people who actually take these tools and uh, try to think of creative ways of how to apply them. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the in, in consultancy, you've got the BCG model or the, you know, you've got the four P's and the five P's and the four C's, you know, and all of these things. And I'm, I'm making up some of these probably now, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but all of these things are largely irrelevant in terms yep. of the, what they are as a, a tool. It, it's only insofar as how you apply it. Correct. Uh, you can give me the best hammer in the world, but if I need a screwdriver, it's not really going to do a lot of good. Correct. So uh, I I don't know of any of many other programs. I'm sure there are, but I didn't. I hadn't come across any uh, that had that same level of putting your tools to practice as they did at Manchester. Um, and as, as that led me to kind of develop my own path, uh, I realized that I had an expectation of what I wanted going into the course, mm-hmm. but the way that I, uh, you know, learned how to apply these new techniques actually gave me the confidence I think I needed to start my own business. It gave me the confidence that my business knowledge was a lot more well, well-rounded than perhaps it was going in, where I might have been a specialist in one area, but really lacking in finance or marketing or strategy or whatever it might be. Project management and organizational skills, that was my strength. And uh, I think the MBA really helped me to broaden out that, that knowledge base. Nice, very good. Uh, and, and so, y- you mentioned tools, right? And and were there particular tools or or you know lessons you learned that sort of stuck with you or you know stayed with you? So, for instance, like you said, you know, when I came into the MBA, I was I, I had certain expectations and things that I wanted to achieve out of it, and and I know when I left. I, there were certain, particularly, I would say, soft skills that I developed, just paying attention in the right courses and listening to the right, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, lessons and things like that. So were, were there particular tools that you think today helped you in your entrepreneurship journey uh, post the MBA? Yeah, so uh, I, I think there's, there's two sides, two ways to answer that question. So. Um, in terms of the, the specific tools, uh, you know, I even though I worked for an accountancy firm, I couldn't read a balance sheet. I I couldn't make sense of a, of a PNL. Uh, you know, I now work with uh, these and cash flow forecasts and any other number of financial models daily. Um, I, I look back at my time in both financial accounting, which I failed, uh, and management accounting, which I also failed. <laughs> um, and 
the subsequent uh, hard work I had to put in to uh, eventually pass those two classes, thankfully with the generous support of the time of two of our our colleagues who uh, each one of them took me under the wing to make sure that I uh, did not fail the second time around. Mm -hmm. And uh, for what it's worth in management accounting, I ended up getting an uh, 84%, I think I did. So you know how uh, high a, a grade that would be, but I failed it the first time around. So um, I had some great tutors. That's but but the, these are these are things I am genuinely putting into practice, uh, you know, from the first moment of running a business. Um, because cash is so important when you're small uh, and managing your uh, bottom line and your overheads and everything so closely. Uh, just things I, I probably wouldn't have, con have considered or not known how to do prior to the MBA. Right. Uh, I also, I've held on to both my strategy notes and my negotiation notes. <laughs> uh, I really, really enjoy both those classes and um, have certainly put some of the things in practice from those two. That, that would be the kind of easy way to answer the question. Um, I think the, the, the thing I really took away was when I keep talking about the application of these tools and how you adapt the, the things that you're given and the knowledge you're given to the situations that you're faced with. And again, I, I, I say, I think the people who come into the MBA with an expectation and go out with that same expectation may not have gotten the best out of the MBA. Uh, I know right. plenty of people who came in and said, I'm here to increase my salary by 50% when I leave on my next job. And if you go in and, and, and you leave and that was your only expectation, uh, you may not have felt like you got the value out of it or yeah. you, and you may not have. Um, I went in thinking that I wanted to work for VC and, or I wanted to work at a startup. Um, but I learned through the course that, that actually what I wanted going into it at the end of it was not what I, uh, really was hoping to, or, or what I was going to get out of it. Um, I learned to be, well, I'd say flexible, but, but also adaptable to uh, how I might have changed over those 18 months. Mm -hmm. And uh, to then go and try something new. Um, yeah, I, I, I think some... I think a lot of MBAs, and I, and I, not just at Manchester, but a lot of MBAs, generally speaking, um, have a very uh, narrow expectation of what they'll get out of it. Right. I, I, I went in very open to where that journey might take me. Do you think that's also related to like financial circumstances? Um, I mean, I don't know how you were placed when you came in versus when you left out, but. Typically, most uh, you know MBAs that leave the program are sort of saddled with debt, and therefore, you know, there are expectations that, uh, as you said, rightly or wrongly, I, I come in to 
you know, increase my salary by X or Y or, or you know, seek this kind of employment. Does that sometimes pose uh, a sort of restriction or hindrance on people's views? And do you think that's something that, especially if you're going into entrepreneurship, you should probably, you know, put aside temporarily? I mean, uh, it's hard for me to say because I've still got nine years on my student loan. So right. um, I, I'll be paying it off for a very long time. But I also uh, thought, you know, I'm only here 18 months. I'm going to take every opportunity. I'm going to meet exciting people. I'm going to travel. I'm going to, you know, I, I didn't do it cheaply. Uh, I'll be the first one to say, uh, you can do an MBA a hell of a lot cheaper than I did it. Right. Um, but I wanted to make the most of every opportunity that was put in front of me. Whether that meant uh, hopping on a train down to London last minute, spending a hundred pounds uh, plus a hotel for one coffee with somebody, uh, you know, I, I I did it because I didn't know where any of these things might lead. Right. Uh, and you could say that it, it it almost sounds like I was a bit lost, and I and I really wasn't. It was I was on the journey, and I was just trying to see where that journey would take me. Uh, I was open more than I was lost. Right. Um, and so I, I I can fully appreciate that economic circumstances um, mean that doing an MBA is expensive. Even even if you do it cheaply, it's still ex expensive. <laughs> yep. um, and I'm sure many of my colleagues are probably in the same boat as me who still have student loans. Um, and it, it's hard for me to say that financial motivations for doing an MBA are, are wrong. I'm, I'm definitely not saying that. Yeah. Um, you, you can go in and have that be the outcome, but, but I think, uh, I think if you are so singularly focused on that being the goal, maybe you lose sight of some other things. Is that a better way of putting it? That is, that is, that is one way of putting it for sure, right? Like the way I would phrase it, it can't be your only goal going in because, you know, the, the way at least I looked at it was the ESU and, you know, most of us will have some kind of debt or some kind of financial uh, burden to, to sort of cover following the, the program. But if you're backing yourself and you know you truly believe your potential both going in and coming out then you know you sort of expect that you will pay off this or you know get it over with down the line and and you know reap the rewards in one way or another so even for me it wasn't um you know the the constraining factor uh it sort of i didn't i didn't do what you did and jump on a train last minute but you know i didn't stop myself from meeting the right people and you know taking the opportunities that were presented and you know ensuring the experience was complete in that regard because as you said you know 18 months is a short time and uh, for most of us we'll never get another chance to do an MBA or you know even go back to school in any way because life takes over but that's sort of the way I would have looked at it. Uh, and, and I know people who probably uh spent half as much and have achieved twice as much uh, since. Uh, I know probably people who've spent uh, two times more and have achieved half as half as much after. 
um, for me, that, that was my journey, mm. and uh, it's how I approached it. Um, but I say, I, I know people who've been enormously successful from, from our class who, uh, you know, probably uh, <laughs> didn't go out all the time, didn't uh, jump on that train, didn't, you know, they, they knew where they wanted going in and they, they were um, hyper-focused on their objectives. Yep. Um, uh, and, and, and they got the value out of it. Yep. Um, I, it, it's, it's really, my journey was, was probably a little bit different than the typical journey, I would say. Yep. Let's, let's talk about your, uh, your, your businesses. So, uh, you know, obviously you left, as you said, and you, you set up the drinks business right after the MBA. Uh, did you, did you do it with any of the classmates or was it, uh, you know, people you had met along the way and, uh, you know, networked through and, and sort of established connections with? Uh, no. So I, I had one friend and my parents who put in a, a cumulative total of 20, 20,000 pounds. Uh, 20,000 pounds was enough to basically buy a pallet of spirits, 720 bottles, ship it, pay the tax on it and have it delivered to my flat. It really didn't leave much left over. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> um, so when it came time to pay rent and things, uh, I knew I had to get selling pretty quickly. Right. So, um, and and I was able to carry on like that uh, after that first pot, not having enough money to buy the second one, but uh, having sold out, but not being paid from my customers yet. So I would be, I didn't have any stock to sell any further, but good relationships that I had built with the the, uh, the distillery that I was buying from mm-hmm. meant they sent it to me on credit terms, given that they didn't even know me, really. They'd met me once, <laughs> um, which incredible. meant that I could continue to sell whilst I waited for people to pay me. And that was a very quick way to learn about cash flow. Right. Um, and we, we carried on like that for about a year before uh, three partners, three founders who'd started a retailer here called Master of Malt asked if I would come on board to um, build a distribution business alongside their retail business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was in 2013. So uh, you could say that after a year, my uh, out of my flat startup, uh, was kind of acquired by this retailer. Uh, they they said, if you come on board here, we will give you all the tools you need to build the team you'd want to build. Um, we will give you uh, a budget to go and find great brands and to import them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will give you uh, a salary, which uh, was a novel idea to me at the time. <laughs> And uh, and we'll give you equity equity in the business. So uh, you know you'll be a partner in building this new business right alongside ours, and we'll be there to support you in as much as you need. Um, so it didn't take me very long to accept that deal because I figured opportunities like that just simply don't come along that often. Mm-hmm. And over the next five years, we built that business into a. Uh, 12 million turnover uh, and about 
16 employees business, um, which alongside the retail business together cumulatively was acquired by uh, ZX Ventures, who are the disruptive growth division of AB Bev, who are the largest drinks company in the world. Uh, as they like to say, they are three times the size of Diageo and twice the size of Coke. That's amazing. That is an incredible, incredible story. It's it's uh, it's truly amazing. You know, selling drinks from your flat to being a part of probably the largest drinks company in the world. That's uh, that that is truly a journey and a story to tell. Well, uh, and you know, integrating a small craft spirits, still relatively small craft spirits distributor, into uh, the largest drinks company in the world. Uh, took a bit of time, mm-hmm. uh, but as that integration has, uh, you know, become deeper and deeper, my role as the founder of Maverick Drinks has become more and more strategic. So I'm I'm less involved in the day-to-day running of the business. Mm-hmm. We have our head of sales who is largely managing the team and, and running the sales to our customers. Uh, I'm still involved in looking at new brands. We we just took on distribution for the one of the oldest brands of spirits in the world. Uh, it's a 446 year old brand, Lucas wow. Ball in the Netherlands. Wow! Um, very excited to have that in our portfolio. It's probably going to be the largest volume brand uh, that we import. And. Uh, I'm also now helping advise on other startups who are earlier on in their journeys, uh, mostly in the ready-to-drink space. Uh, so I have a a non-alk ready-to-drink brand. I have a uh, more spritz-led, uh, so wine and flavorings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a cocktail brand uh, that's uh, basically launched in Waitrose. Um, earlier this year, um, so I'm, I'm advising. I, I also sit on the board of a tea and spirit business. Uh, they combine Earl Grey and gin, uh, green mint tea and rum, oolong tea, and Scotch whiskey. Wow! Um, so just getting a, a lot more variety of brands that I have ever worked with before. Um, so I've got. Yeah, n- now I'm, I've got my hands in uh, non-alk. I've got my hands in RTDs uh, or re- ready-to-drink beverages, um, all the way up to craft spirits. And as you said, uh, my wife and I, we also launched a brand of extra virgin olive oil from a single estate in Crete uh, in December of, of last year. So, so let's talk about that. Like, I mean, w- was it a case of just having more time from your, uh, you know, Maverick Drinks uh, venture, given now, you know, as you said, you're not directly involved in the day to day? Or was it just, you know, again, a case of, oh, I just, uh, you know, I've sort of seen my vision of the drinks come through and now I want to, you know, test again. So, so the entrepreneur and you decided, let's just do something different. Well, uh, it's been something we've been thinking about for a long time, but uh, as you rightly say, we just simply didn't have the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met a a woman who's an English teacher. She is from Greece, living in Crete. Um, But 
been teaching English for, you know, near on 20 years. And we met on the ferry between Santorini and Crete. She uh, invited me into her home uh, for lunch. We took me on a tour of the city uh, and made sure I uh, got on my way uh, safely on my next uh, leg of my journey. And uh, we've remained close friends ever since. Uh, and she has in her name 270 olive trees. Wow. And every year when we would go to visit, because they've become so close that they are basically family, um, they would send us back with uh, two liters, five liters. Uh, one time I think we had two five liter jugs of olive oil in our suitcase. <laughs> wow. And, uh, by by some miracle, they didn't, they didn't spill. But, and we kept bringing this back and we share with friends and people would say, oh my God, th this olive oil is incredible. We'd say, yeah, we know. We, we, we got it from our friends directly from the source. Um, we know that they they use the bare minimum level of any kind of chemicals or anything because because this is also the olive oil that they eat and they don't want to eat olive oil that's been harshly treated with chemicals or uh you know where the land has been um uh, over farmed they they want to see these these olive groves for generations and pass them on to their kids uh so they they really take such great care of the land that what they get out of it is a great quality product. And so when we had a little bit of time where we weren't traveling last year, we weren't going out, uh, we, you know, both my wife and I had stepped uh, out of our businesses to, to the same kind of degree. And we just had the time to think maybe now is the time we build a new brand based around this olive oil because um, when, and, and, and to get into the detail of the olive oil a little bit, when they would normally produce it, they would take what they need for themselves and they would sell the rest to a middleman there who he buys from probably 200 other families, blends all of these together wow. and ships it on a, a, off to Athens where it's a, it's a commodity. It's traded as a commodity. So their product is blended in with people who maybe they use tons of chemicals, maybe they poor farming practices. You, you don't know the quality of the things that gets blended in with. But what you know at the end is it is a completely anonymous and homogenous. Right. And that's that's kind of sad when you think about it, that, that something is such a precious resource and it's just being blended away into anonymity. And so we wanted to really shine a light on what they do as producers. So we have their family name in the bottle. Our name isn't on the bottle. It's their family name. They are the producers. And we were inspired by the drinks world. We talk about terroir, like they talk about wine, which means mm -hmm. the, the, so the soil and the climate and everything has an effect on the flavor. Um, not single origin. Single origin tends to be coffee and chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um you know, we could have said single family, um, but we wanted to draw on wine cues, wine estates, single estate olive oil. We talk about low intervention, and that's a very common term in wine, where meaning, uh, though it may not be certified organic, it is the bare minimum 
intervening of the of the the land yeah to make the 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 product you want um and ultimately when we started researching about soil health we realized that there was a effectively a crisis uh in many parts of the world where over farming or over tilling or uh poor irrigation practices have left dry arid dirt it's no longer soil uh, it's just dirt mm. and we donate a percentage of every bottle sold um to soil regeneration projects through a ngo called kiss the ground right okay and we really just want to do something that was positive in a in a really horrible awful time for basically everybody we spent all of our time and energy focusing on creating something that was um that paid our producers a, a proper wage that did good on the back end by donating to soil regeneration projects that tasted really good and made people happy and it was just something that we could feel really good about that's that's uh is that the vision you went in with when you first started i know i know you said they were family friends but listening to you and just listening to your whole journey and you know i'll i'll segregate this i'll segue into another question after this but is that how you approach these things like you know when you start off on a venture or something you want to do is there and and goal inside or is it let's go on the journey and see where this takes us so in this case like i want to help this family out or you know this is really good olive oil that i think has uh, you know tremendous commercial uh, potential that i will uh, monetize here yeah i mean uh we we went into it thinking if nothing else and we paid them more than double what they would normally get for this product it was probably worthwhile doing now of course we 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 think there's an opportunity and but our reason for for growing it more is to be able to buy more from them and to to make this a really meaningful part of their lives rather than it being basically one step above pouring it pouring it away <laughs> you know they weren't making any real money from selling it to these middlemen right and we also saw when we we looked at we bought every olive oil we could possibly find greek italian spanish croatian you, you name it wherever we could get olive oil and they all basically looked the same i mean the same design cues the same um the same language being used there was really nothing to us that genuinely stood out here in the uk a couple brands in the us were doing some interesting things but here in the uk uh we couldn't find a single brand that kind of inspired us or, or excited us so we created the brand that we wanted to see in the world what's what, just for the listeners what's the brand and how do they get a hold of this amazing olive oil uh so the brand is called citizens of soil and uh you can get it on our website uh citizensofsoil.com uh and we are uh just a couple of weeks away from launching in a very large department store on Oxford Street uh which I can't quite say until it's totally totally done and on the shelves but suffice say uh soon we're going to have a lot more availability but I would say the best place to get it as well as to get subscription refills 
because we want to reduce the amount of glass that we're shipping around uh, and lower our carbon impact uh, is from our website, citizensofsoil.com. Amazing. So if you guys missed it, it's citizensofsoil.com where you can taste and get some of this amazing olive oil. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're patient, it'll be in stores or in a particular store somewhere down the line. So Michael will keep you posted on that. Um, So Michael, just look, in the interest of time, I know I've taken a fair bit of your time today, but um, if you were to you know, look back on your journey, say the last uh, nine, 10 years post the MBA and even the MBA and you were to uh, an aspiring MBA and someone who wanted to follow the entrepreneurship path came to you and said, uh, you know, give me three uh, tips in terms of do's and don'ts from your own life experience or your own experience over the last 10 years, what would they be? Um, well, I, I, I first have to, Give some credit to uh, you know my, my colleagues. Uh, there, har- I can hardly think of a single colleague who, from our class, who didn't shape my journey in some way. Um, and if you'd picked any one, any individual person, I could probably tell you, ah, well, here's the one thing I think uh, I remember about them that shaped that journey. Uh, I also have to give credit to uh, Elaine Fernley, who was our MBA director, who uh, saw the potential in doing an entrepreneurship project that kind of set all this in motion. Um, and if I were to give three tips, if I were, um, well, one is uh, start off with triple the amount of cash you think you need to do it. So if you think you can launch a business with 25K, you should have 75K in the bank. Um, I never followed that rule. Um, I, I, even though I know that should be the rule, uh, <laughs> I always do it the wrong way. And I always find we don't have enough cash to, to do it as well as we'd like. But if you have the means, I would have triple the amount of money you think you need in the bank. Um, another rule I would, I, I've always tried to follow is that there is no real right or wrong time to launch a product. Uh, I wouldn't say launching a um, uh, a hot coffee in summer is the wrong time or a uh, cold beverage in winter or, you know, people said, well, you've launched an olive oil in the winter, but people use it on salads. I'm like, well, people still eat salad in the winter. They just eat different salad. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's really, if you wait for the right time, you may end up never doing it. Yeah. Um, so the right time is when you have the time or when you make the time to do it. And lastly, I'd say, um, you know, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but when we talk about, uh, the best investments you can make, I would always bet on myself before anything else. I, I, whether that is investing in myself to do an MBA, even if I, uh, still have nine more years on that student loan. Um, I I feel I got the value out of it. Um, yeah. When we had a bit of money to be able to put towards a project, I could have invested in another brand. Yeah. We chose to create a brand of our own. And I always think investing in, in yourself is going to be the best investment you can make. 
that's amazing that's great that's that's amazing advice uh, a lot to learn from your journey michael and you know I, like i said it's been amazing to watch um it was not a path that uh, many took during our mba and you know it's it's been great to see your success and i've been following it along uh you know with the drinks business and then uh, there are some amazing brands by the way on on michael's drinks uh, maverick drinks and uh, master of malt if you haven't checked it out and then i do need to get myself one of those bottles of olive oil so uh we'll try that as well but it's been incredible to watch you and uh, you know now sarah join you so many congratulations on your success and you know thank you for taking the time to to speak and and i'm sure this will inspire many others to to follow your path as well honestly I, you know i still feel and i uh, maybe I, ho- i hope i always feel this way in some ways um at the very beginning of my journey still um having learned quite a few things but i still feel very early on in that journey but uh the mba played a foundational role in uh getting me to where i am today and uh to, to that end i i couldn't be happier to be here talking about it and um sharing some stories with you turin great thanks michael we'll sign off and uh, i'll be in touch take care take care thank you